this is Samantha. I'm the Education Director at the AANS. I want to welcome you and invite you to join us in Philly for the AANS Annual Meeting. This is not the meeting you know. We have heard from you and the meeting is now a four-day weekend meeting with our opening reception and our opening session starting on Friday. We hope you will stay and enjoy the full meeting and stay through Monday, which are the Community Days, which is a new program for us. Um, these are your sessions designed for you to be interactive and engaging and give you an opportunity to connect and engage. There is something new on every day of this meeting, and we hope you will come and explore the city of Philadelphia and explore this new experience. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am absolutely delighted and honored to be joined today by Dr. Bradley Dangler. Dr. Dangler is actually um, a colonel in the U.S. Army. He's one of the top-ranking neurosurgeons in this country. Uh, he's a uh, career service man, if you will. Mm. And uh, we have a great debt of gratitude for him uh, representing us in um, multiple arenas around this world. Uh, and I just heard him give an amazing talk about the impact of war and casualties and what it's like to perform in a theater, in an operating theater, in the theater of battle. So uh, Dr. Dangler, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dr. Wang. It's uh, an honor to be here, actually. Yeah, I'm so lucky. We're here in Texas, great state of Texas. We're both here as honored guests uh, giving lectures, so I'm, I'm glad you were able to make a little bit of time to talk to us. But let's let's start out by talking about how you got to where you are today. Tell us about you know how you grew up, where you went to school, your training and all that. Sure. So I grew up in a very small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, we like to say we had more cows than people. <laughs> One of those small towns where everybody knew everybody else. So my grandparents knew all my friends' parents and grandparents. And if I was said I was dating a girl, they would say, you can't date that person because I, their grandfather angered me 30 years ago. Um, so it was one of those types of towns. And I, I was telling Dr. Wang a story. I decided I want to go to West Point when I was like a junior. And I said to the guidance counselor, I want to go to West Point. And she said, well, we don't send people there from this school. And that's kind of been the fighting moment of my life. Because after that, I've been like, if you tell me I can't do something, then it's going to be pretty sure I'm just going to actually do it. So I proved her wrong, went to West Point for undergraduate. Um, at West Point, I kind of was thinking about medical school. They said that's too hard to do out of West Point because only two or you know two percent of the graduating class is allowed to go directly to medical school. So I entered West Point before we were at war, right? So I graduated high school in 2001, the summer of 2001, and started at West Point in July of 2001. That's a couple months before September 11th. So as far as we were concerned, there was no war, nothing was happening. I was going to do my time in the army and get out. Then September 11th happens almost immediately after my cadet basic training, like at the beginning of the academic year. And it was a huge decision to either stay or go because we knew um, if you stayed and committed after your junior year, you were going to graduate and you know almost certainly go right immediately to war. So it was a, it was a pretty hard decision to do that, um, but we did. And then I remember I was almost a pilot, but I was drinking at, at the bar we had on base at West Point with my buddies who said, uh, you know, you go be a doctor like you want to be and we'll take care of the flying. And you just put us back together when we get blown up. So that kind of sealed the deal. And I applied and went right to the Uniform Services University for med school, graduated there in 2009. I was dead set on being a trauma surgeon. So I'm like, I'm being in the Army forever. I have all this commitment. I'm going to be a trauma surgeon, critical care. Like that's where the action is. 
So I went and actually did an internship in general surgery at that time, Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. And then the Army decided that I needed to go play Army because I had all this commitment time. So I was actually sent to Fort Hood in between, and I was a brigade surgeon for a field artillery brigade, where I was a general medical officer taking care of sick call, advising the brigade commander on medical issues. Um, and then it kind of was fortuitous. A bunch of things happened, and people made some phone calls, and they said, hey, do you want to be a brain surgeon? And I said, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Not been on my radar before. So um, I got actually, we kind of made a pathway and led the way, and we created a DODVA program in San Antonio, at the University of Texas, San Antonio. So I was the first Army resident there, and since then they've taken an Army resident every year. If the Army can't fill it, they'll take a Navy or an Air Force resident. So we kind of have a collaboration with them going strong since then. Um, and during that time, they started a critical care fellowship. So I did an enfolded neurocritical care fellowship before I graduated. Um, and after graduating, I then went to uh, went to Walter Reed because we have the residency program um, as the neurointensivist kind of neurotrauma guy for the residency program. And then um, after there, I you know have two combat deployments in the last five years since I've been at Walter Reed. Wow. And, and you're now a lieutenant colonel. Right? Lieutenant colonel. Right. Okay, great. So so that's fascinating. I mean, you've 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 been at two of our great national treasure institutions, Uniformed Services University and West Point. So that's fantastic. And I'm sure the education there is 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 um, is beyond compare and excellent. So when you were in you went to Iraq twice. Correct. OK. Yeah. I mean, how was it? To be there. I mean, obviously, it's so it's a, a place. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing to do. So the first time I went for probably five months, and it was uh, the July to December ish of 2018. Nothing was not a lot of stuff was happening. I did a couple cases, a couple uh, trauma thing, but really, it's about just being prepared and getting the team prepared for. You never know what's going to happen if anything comes in. You're stuck on a base that's you know a couple miles around a circle that you can run, so a three mile loop around the outside. Um, they had a nice gym. We uh, kind of shared the base with the State Department, so they made sure they had not lots of nice food and stuff. So it wasn't the worst place. Um, the worst part is being kind of away from your family and everything else. But we found things to do. And the second time I went back, and that would have been December of 2019 through kind of almost July of 2020. So I was in Iraq um, for, this is what I'm going to talk about later today, is the... Uh, Right after we got there, I'm thinking about having another chill deployment where we just play volleyball and do a couple cases and hang out. Um, and that drastically changed after they, um, President Trump ordered the assault on Soleimani, which was essentially right outside the base where we were staying. So then everything changed and now it was a big deal. And then I was there to live through the ballistic missile attack in January of 2020. And then we survived that and thought, oh, we're going to be fine. And then uh, COVID hit. And now we're like, what are we doing about COVID in Iraq in a tent? So we had to come up with contingency plans for that. And having been, you know, a neurointensivist and a, and a critical care trained doctor, it, they basically told me I'm going to be in charge of the COVID ICU as the neurosurgeon, because all we had was a pulmonologist who had to go to a different base um, to do stuff. And then the trauma critical care surgeon. So they're like, it's more likely he's going to be operating. So you're going to be the COVID person. And I was like, okay, so we set up everything. And if You've never had to innovate a person wearing a gas mask that you wear for chemical attacks. It's a new experience. Um, that's all we had. We had no N95s at that point. So the best thing we came up with was if you think they have COVID, we're just wearing our chemical gas mask. That was supposed to you know, take out all the virus particles and all that kind of stuff too. So that was kind of fascinating. But that, that deployment um, ended then with uh, uh, the Iranian militias actually firing rockets at us. So I was there. Taji was another base in Iraq at that point. It was on the news. They had gotten a mass cal incident in which um, they fired 32 rockets at that base. And we got about, I want to say like seven to 10 casualties at the same time. 
um, where again, I used more of my critical care skills than I did my neurosurgery skills and led the resuscitations for all the casualties while the trauma surgeon was operating. So um, we had gotten hit with a couple missiles within 50 meters of where we, where we were living and felt the blast waves and stuff like that. So it was a vastly different experience the second time around um, as far as that goes. Wow, Dr. Dangler, what a what a striking story that's got you to where you are today and just an, an obviously compelling sequence of events that your career path and your life path kind of winds through, uh, as you described, through sheer will and, and sheer stubbornness, in fact, busting through the doors that you were told you couldn't walk through. You know, when, when you talk about having a prepared team before going overseas um, and some of these striking visuals that you're describing, I, I want to give a quick shout out to Sean Jeffords, one of our dedicated neuro scrub nurses at Rush, where I work, who is a military scrub nurse before uh, getting out of the service and continuing that job privately, who he just, just a couple weeks ago was showing us pictures from his time in the service where he was stationed. And he's standing there in an operating room with two trauma surgeons who were back to back doing cases back to back. And he's standing there with gloves on holding an M16. And I said, what, what are you doing with a rifle? And he goes, Oh, yeah. Well, I was a circulator in that room. Circulator's job is to open sponges and guard the room. And just imagining yeah. having those two jobs at once uh, and, you know, hearing you talk about having a prepared team, uh, I, ca I, can, I can't, in fact, imagine being in that position, having never walked that road. But hearing you describe the early part of your career, and in particular, when you made the decision to join the military from the outset and go to West Point, as you pointed out, at that time, you know, the United States had troops overseas, but we weren't actively engaged in a major large-scale conflict and major large-scale operations. And Dr. Wang and I often talk about these other podcasts we listen to, Jocko Willink, Andy Stump, these Navy SEAL guys. And on their shows, they often talk about that period of time before 9-11 when many people joined the military for various reasons, but many of them thought, oh, I'll never really see a big conflict. I'll never really see real action like that. Some of them wistfully because they wanted to see a battlefield and find glory. And some of them who got a rude awakening after 9-11 happened. I wonder if you could cast your mind back and kind of talk with us as someone who had medical aspirations, who, who had thoughts of being a doctor, at least once you got to the military. What was your mindset like when you chose to walk that path and join the service? And how did it change for you when 9-11 happened? Yeah. So, I mean, my initial thought was like, you know, my grandfather talked me into it. It was like his dream that someone, he had been a retired World War II vet and his dream, someone goes to West Point in the family and he kind of chose me at an early age to be like, let's put all the energy into Brad and make him go. Um, so I bought into that Kool-Aid, I guess. And then I, it was going to be a, I'll go to West Point. I'll, you know, either do my time and get out um, kind of partially to make my grandfather happy, then partially to prove the guidance counselor wrong um, and get there. And I thought, right. you know, yeah. experience right too and you know I, I had a twin brother and i came from a, a family i knew my parents were certainly and i didn't want them to to have to pay for my college so it was a way to get a you know an ivy league education um, without having to have a lot of debt so i thought there are a lot of pluses to it and i thought i'd do my time get out um and that would be it because no one had really talked about war since you know we were kids and it was desert shield desert storm um and then, yeah, then September 11th hit and it was a big decision. Uh, I think at that point, it was already that I was so committed to graduating West Point that it didn't really matter what was going to happen. I was just going to go and make it happen and graduate no matter what. It was really, 
it was really lots of discussions with my friends and my buddies um, and deciding, should I go and be a second lieutenant in a, the infantry or the field artillery um, and go to war? Or should I do what I want to do and be a doctor? I was really kind of talking to those guys and them saying, and like I said before, you know, you're the smart one out of our group. Please go to medical school and put us back together and we'll go do the ground pounding um, infantry stuff. Um, and it'll help us knowing that you're there to put us back together. So I think it's that that's kind of my decision process um, to get here because I'm looking at my skills and my abilities. I kind of knew I could do better being a doctor and focusing on research and putting them back together than probably being an infantry officer. So, you know, in neurosurgical training, it's integral to, I think, every training program that residents are exposed to trauma mm -hmm. and trauma mechanisms. And, and in the urban settings, often that's penetrating, right? And, you know, I'm all, everybody's delivered the bad news to a family where they have to talk to a loved one or a mother about how their son or daughter was shot in the head mm -hmm. and how, and then, you know, will they survive? And then, you know, I often say things that probably sound insensitive, like, well, but these, these weapons are designed to kill. I mean, that's the purpose of them. But we all know that uh, most of those penetrating injuries don't occur with the type of ferocity that happens in the battlefield. In other words, the, the caliber or velocity of these munitions or the impact of IEDs versus like a concussion, right? Mm -hmm. They're intended to destroy a human. Yeah. And you see that first person in the battlefield. Do you think that our urban experiences as we do with like in Miami and LA, when we're trying to get soldiers and, and staff ready for that kind of thing. Do you think it's inadequate preparation? Do you think it's, it's parallel or is it? I think it's, I think it's parallel. I think it's as good as training we're going to get in the States. Um, and we certainly, we have in Miami, you guys have the army mm -hmm. training center, right? We send all our trauma right. surgeons and teams rotate down there. And th those are the best prepared trauma surgeons to go down range into Iraq and Afghanistan or prior Afghanistan. Um, but yeah, I think, Certainly, we see a lot worse and injuries from the blast exposures and the penetrating injuries from that and the high velocity gunshot wounds. Um, but I think the principles are still the same. But like, if, if like it's very common, right? We'll see uh, people in gang warfare, and most of these these violent criminal thugs aren't trained to kill, really, right? Yeah. But they have a weapon, and they 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 utilize it poorly, right? And they also usually don't have fully automatic you know, uh, fully, fully militarized, yeah. if you will, um, training and, um, uh, and, and material, right? So I imagine when you go in a place like Iraq, where the intent is to kill as many people as you can on the other side, potentially, mm -hmm. right? I'm not saying it's always the case, but potentially, and you see those injuries where people are just, I mean, riddled with munitions or a grenade goes off next to them that's got to be a little different, right, than what you see in, in Miami. Yeah, because you have the uh, not just, I think the more the civilian penetrating trauma is going to be isolated head trauma. Mm -hmm. But now we're dealing with the blast and you have the head trauma, but now they've lost an amputation of their leg. They've gotten fragments all throughout their chest. So a lot of times what we'll see is we're all operating together, which doesn't happen as much, I think, in the civilian world. So I'll be doing a craniectomy while the orthopedic surgeon is doing uh, – an amputation while the general surgeons are maybe opening the chest. Um, so that is kind of the more, it's much sicker people with more injuries in multiple systems. And that's kind of, I think what we get from the blast along with the high. Right. I'm struck by, and this came out in your talk today here at TANS about the spirit of, of, of these soldiers. In other words, they're in a really horrific situation in a foreign land 
Um, and their spirit is really amazing that their, their willingness to fight and persevere. And by this fight fighting, I mean, fight against the disease, illness, trauma, and try to get back into something resembling normal, or even back into going down range, as you say, right? Mm-hmm. What, it's amazing to me. I mean, that young men and women are doing this. Yeah. So the, the perseverance of our young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines is phenomenal. Um, they have bounced back and it's really about being part of that team. And I think there, there are a lot of their goals. We have to pull them back and say, you can't go back yet to be with your team, but we have created such a camaraderie and team mentality um, in our junior enlisted that they want nothing else but to get back no matter what. Um, and it's our job as kind of the medical professionals to help them get there. You know, Dr. Dangler, I, I, I almost hesitate to keep focusing on your experience as a field surgeon, but I, I think of all the people we've had the privilege to talk to on the show, it's, it's a very uncommon uh, sphere of medical practice and really sphere of life that we've had access to, to discuss and to really pick your brain about. And so we, we often talk with surgeons on the show and physicians of, of various disciplines, most of them surgical, about those scenarios where particularly with neurosurgeons, because there are a few of us for a given population or a given community, you end up having to take care of people that you know personally, who you don't just meet as a patient, Uh, maybe, you know, in rare cases, a family member, but certainly a friend, someone in your community that you know on a personal level before disease brings them to you professionally. And so I can imagine when you're overseas um, and you're embedded in the field when you're downrange, as you say, taking care of these soldiers, you're, you end up treating people that you know at a very intimate level, in, in some cases maybe as close as family or closer. Did you ever have an experience like that? And if so, can you even describe what's that, what that's like as a surgeon? It's, it's, I think as a surgeon, we're all good at putting those types of things to the side, but it does you know, initially strike you pretty badly. We got hit with a couple of rockets uh, in our living area where all the doctors and all the techs and everything were living. <laughs> And a lot, and some people had pretty bad, you know, blast concussions. And after that, we had to like go treat them, evaluate them and, you know, tell them they were out of the fight. And that, that was the closest we got to, you know, treating someone that we had known personally before that, but it was, it it was super hard. And we had to like take a step back and be like, let me do what's right for the patient. And I'm going to, you have to put away all the other kind of stuff going into it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I know that you need to get back to the meeting, but I just want to close and allow you to, to say something about this. Prior to this recording, we talked a little bit about the need for young doctors and neurosurgeons in the military. And there's great programs that our country provides for this. Do you want to just give people an access to a resource or a link or a summary of the programs that are available now? Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have the HPSP scholarship for medical school. You can go to the Uniform Services University. That's a different, um, and that gets you a seven-year commitment to the military, and you can choose whatever residency you want to do. There's the HPSP scholarship, which pays for your medical school. You have a four-year commitment, also can apply and choose whatever residency you want to do. There are programs you can sign up while you're a resident um, to come on to active duty after you graduate residency, um, and you'll get a stipend partially during residency. Um, and then there's a, um, and then you can, after you're already out of residency, you can sign up too. And there's always the reserves. We need good people in the reserves too, because sometimes we ask them for help. Um, and that's really one weekend a month, two weeks a year kind of thing. Um, and for the most part, um, they leave you alone from what I understand. 
not having been in the reserves, but I've been deployed with reservists. They say they, in the vast majority of the units, they will respect your time as a doctor and it's not a lot of nonsense and they'll call you up when they need you. Um, otherwise, um, you can serve in that in that way. And, you know, going, it's been in the news and case volumes in the military treatment facilities are an issue. Um, we're working on that problem and there's lots of new partnerships forming. Miami has a partnership with the military. All of our army trauma surgeons go down there and rotate through. Um, we have now embedded neurosurgeons at multiple institutions. Um, for throughout the country. So Cooper and Camden was the first. We have a neurosurgeon there that works like he's any other doctor at Cooper. And when uh, we get something up, I tap him and he goes and deploys to Iraq. We have one at UNC right now in Chapel Hill. And um, there's, you know, some other institutions in the works. So we're working on being more integrated with our civilian partners and getting um, kind of the experience and case volume that everybody needs to do. So I won't let that be an issue. And it's certainly, it, it's experiences joining the military you will never get to have any other time in your life um, that I think are worthwhile. Um, and, you know, there's some government bureaucracy, but for the most part, I would not change what I've done and I go back and do it all over again. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Dangler, I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast. Thank you for not only your service to our nation, but your leadership. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be here. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.